episode 19 of Young and Dumb. My name's Joe. I'm one of your hosts. I'm here with my good friend, Prasanna. How's it going? It's going good, man. I think this is the first time we've ever done this on a Monday night. Yeah, for sure. So this might be different. Uh, Should we acknowledge our broken promises or just kind of move past that? I think we can just move past it. Cool. Um, Otherwise, how is your week going so far? I know it's only Monday. How's your weekend? Anything new in life? Uh, I went out for the back-to-back days, Friday, Saturday, for the first time in a long time this weekend, and it was a stark reminder of my mortality. (laughs) I can't even imagine doing that anymore. Like, just one night is so intimidating. It was really, really hard, man. Like, I mean, like, I think once you get to the actual going out part of the second night, you, you get your energy back a little bit. Uh, and like, cause you're excited and you, you like want to go out and everything. Um, but it really hits you the next day, like around like 11 AM to 1 PM, like literally all of the lack of sleep and alcohol and energy drain of the weekend just like hits you all at once. And you're just like, wow, I, I'm never going to do this again. Yeah. And I feel like for me, like if I go out, then my next day is, like, a large portion that is consumed by me just be, like, lying in bed being, like, uh... Yeah, exactly. And if that happens on back-to-back days, then it's, like, you like you have a weekend, but you don't really have time to, like, recharge. You know what I'm saying? That's the whole problem. It's, like, a weird trade-off. And I don't know. I mean, I do get a little bit of recharge from going out, but then, like, the other part that, that like, just the sheer energy takeaway that like it also implies like I feel like ends up being an overall net negative I feel that well I respect your hustle uh we got a lot of cool and important stuff some scary stuff to talk about today um first we want to acknowledge that it's uh December 4th so this is the anniversary of the day that Chicago police and the FBI conspired to kill uh Black Panther members Fred Hampton and Mark Clark uh they're only 21 and 22 years old at the time, so still, like, wild to think about. It was at night. They're in their beds. Uh, I don't know if you have anything that you want to comment on specifically. Yeah. Well, I, the main thing I wanted to point out was that they were, well, at least Fred Hampton was definitely younger than the both of us, and I think Mark Clark probably was too, which is just absolutely absurd to think of, like... There was an entire government conspiracy to kill two people who were younger than us. Like, that's the sort of impact that Fred Hampton and Mark Clark had. And, I mean, I I think I say that not to really... I mean, obviously, yes, like, it shows how little we've done. But I I think I just more want to highlight, like, how exemplary of a person like especially like Fred Hampton was and I mean I had heard of Fred Hampton before but after we did our project over the summer on on the Black Panthers like I really got a perspective for how big of a deal his murder was and like how it really rocked America um in this huge way and like also led to a huge growth within the Panther Party um, and that was a perspective I didn't have before, just understanding the importance of his work and his, his death. For sure. If uh, anyone listening has never 
listened to any of Fred Hampton's speeches, I highly recommend that you do that. He was an amazing orator. Uh, I just, it blows my mind every time that, uh, that he was that young and was able to you know, express ideas like that that could reach so many different groups of people. I also want to acknowledge that um, Mark Clark was like an active member of the Panthers. I think sometimes like because Fred Hampton is such an iconic figure, Mark Clark either gets kind of erased from this day or uh, kind of mentioned in passing. But just off a, a little, you know, Google search and a, a scan of his Wikipedia page, like he was integral in helping set up set up the uh, free food program um, in the Illinois chapter and, um, you know, helping find space to do that. And I think just acknowledging that, you know, he, he actually you know, was a contributor to the party, not just, you know, um, collateral damage to this. And I think another thing that I, I want to add on top of that is I think – even people who respect the Panthers' work and, like, you know, support the ideas that the Panthers stood for have a kind of misconception about the Panthers that it was primarily, like, an Oakland, New York sort of movement um, and that don't really... A lot of people don't understand how pervasive it was in every single part of the country and, like, how many cha- local Panther chapters had a huge influence on their respective communities. So we're not talking about, like, oh, just, like, another uh, Panther chapter, tiny little chapter in Illinois that, like, didn't really have uh, an effect on, like, the larger national picture. Like, this was, like, the Illinois chapter was, like, exploding, especially under Fred Hampton's and Mark Clark's leadership. And it's not just, like, a talking point, like, talking about their murders. Like, that had a real effect on, like, those local communities and the organizing that was happening in those cities and the broader organizing of the Panthers in general. Like, this was a really, really big deal and a huge blow to the Panthers and to, like, Chicago and Illinois. So just wanted to bring that up. For sure. Uh, So rest in power forever to uh, both of those kids. Um, I guess moving on, one thing that I wanted to talk about today uh, that I actually learned about through a class project I'm doing uh, is the Sinclair Broadcasting Group and uh, their acquisition or pending acquisition of Tribune Media. Uh, I really want to talk about this because before my class, I had never heard of Sinclair, um, and I asked Persano before he recorded, and he had never heard of them either, but they are the largest television broadcasting company in the United States. So they um, own or operate almost 600 channels uh, across the U.S. They have uh, multiple channels in many of the U.S.'s top 25 and top 50 markets. So like this is a company with real reach. And the gag is that they have an extreme conservative political bent. Um, so most of their uh, news programming or all of their news programming is local news. But they really control the message that their local, local news affiliates put out. Um, so they have these things called must-run segments where they centrally produce these news stories and then require that uh, their news affiliates air them within 24 to 48 hours. They have a thing called the Terrorism Alert Desk that runs daily even if there's not like a major um, terrorism attack. And they also only, of course, like cover what they would describe as like radical Islamic terror and not like white American domestic terror, that kind of stuff. Um their VP or their senior political analyst is a former senior advisor to the Trump administration, and he 
uh, coordinates one of these must-run segments. And maybe the scariest thing is that all of their local stations are run through affiliates, so like Fox and ABC. So it's not like these stations have uh, Sinclair Broadcasting attached to them, like the name. It's people getting local news who think it's, you know, um, like a kind of like, I guess, like a smaller source, something that is locally controlled and tailored towards them. But it's really like this massive corporation that's behind it. Uh, one other thing I forgot to mention was that Jared Kushner, uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law, uh, he reportedly said that uh, the Trump campaign traded more access uh, to their campaign to Sinclair in return for more favorable cover, more favorable coverage of the Trump campaign. So a lot of shit. And with this new uh, uh, acquisition of Tribune that is likely to go through, they will have access to 72% of American households. Uh, and I, like, I didn't hear about it at all. Even um, now that I've been working on this project, I've kind of like kept an eye on my Twitter timeline and stuff like that, and just nothing. So uh, after I've thrown all that terrifying information at you, like, do you have any immediate reactions? Yeah, so I think there are a few things. The first is this like fucking monopoly that's being created it, like I feel like that's symptomatic of like this broader problem that no one ever talks about anymore, which is like trust formation and monopoly formation through acquisitions. Like we see this happen all the time. Like Time Warner like try to buy AT and T or something like that. Uh, Bayer bought Monsanto. Like just massive corporations buying other massive corporations and. You know, like you learn in history, like, oh, Teddy Roosevelt was like antitrust and busted all these trusts. You don't hear any shit about people wanting to do that kind of stuff anymore. Any antitrust politics, anti-monopoly politics. And especially at a time like now when like socialism is becoming more of a thing. And like, I'm just so shocked that that doesn't ever like we we live on like leftist like Twitter and like that never really comes up. So I yeah I, I mean I I'm like shocked about this. Like seventy two percent is ridiculous. Yeah, and so one thing that uh, listeners might notice is in between our hiatus, we've become uh, we've had, we've gained a much more critical <laughs> frame of capitalism, and and so I think you know one of the principles of capitalism that people always talk about is kind of this. Uh, constant need to expand capital or to expand profits. Um, and so something that I learned, I've learned in this class, this business class I'm taking this semester, is that um, when an industry gets mature, so like when the consumer market for the industry is no longer growing, um, companies like, they don't feel like, oh, well, okay, like we, we've run our course, like we should just like kind of let the natural course of the industry go. It's like, well, how can we artificially grow if like organic mm. growth is slowing? So it's literally like a strategy that is taught is, like acquiring new companies oh, wow. like yeah. to build market power and, and all that kind of stuff. So like, <laughs> you know, just like, right. it's really interesting to me now, like with um, like a stronger critique of capitalism to like look at like some of these principles that get taught in my classes and like see how they really like tie into like what's happening in the real world and kind of explain why, um, you know, monopolies like this are, are growing. That's super interesting. And I feel like it brings up a lot of stuff that I've been thinking about, like, um, like, first of all, thinking about like how mergers and acquisitions are such like this heralded thing now, like, uh, everyone who goes to college and does like finance always is trying to work in mergers and acquisitions. 
Uh, like that's where the big bucks are, it looks like, and that's like where the prestige is. So I think that's really interesting. And then also, um, oh, what was I going to say? Like the, oh, I totally forgot. I had a good point. <laughs> well, just to go off of, of what you're saying, maybe you'll remember what you're yeah. going to say afterwards. Um, one of the other things is that, you know, global expansion was one of the ways to, uh, organically, I got quote in quotes, organically grow a market uh, for businesses. But now, like <laughs> global capitalism is so entrenched that um, for established industries, there's not much of an opportunity to like to kind of try to dump your product into another country, or try to like destroy their local economy right. so that you can sell your product. So again, it's like yeah, these, these trends definitely make sense when you well make sense in the frame of capitalism when you consider them in like the larger context. Right, and that reminds me of what I was gonna say, <laughs> which is it kind of like goes to the broader trend of the like financialization of capitalism, because like in the '80s we started to see like these big banks like instead of their main purpose being just like lending to businesses, they started to um, like trade in all of these like super uh, complex like financial assets like twist all of these stocks into very complex securities and that became like the prominent sort of uh, money-making arm of these large businesses like Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, etc. So I feel like this whole mergers and acquisitions thing is like another arm of that where it's like we're not actually really trying to create any real uh, goods anymore or real progress anymore. Everything is like nominal in the sense that it's all just like the sort of superficially created um, short-term gains uh, that we kind of get by twisting the market or, or like doing these little tricks and turns. Um, and that seems super unsustainable. And I think it also kind of hints at like um, like a weakness of capitalism a little bit or a faltering in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, and that's kind of like one of the, the things um, that's key to like Marx's theory, right, is the, this idea that uh, capitalism will eventually ca cannibalize. Mm -hmm. um, and I think things like uh, global expansionism and mergers and acquisitions have staved that off. But it, it will be very interesting to see like how large corporations react, especially in industries that have, you know, been commodified. So like older industries like, you know, household products or like TV, where there's not really a growing market anymore. Uh, like how these large companies like will, I guess, manage their need to constantly expand with the, <laughs> with the fact that there aren't places to expand to anymore. And that like the competition, instead of having like all these smaller companies they can swallow up, it will eventually get to be like, you know, two or three like massive companies that are all, you know, kind of attacking each other. So it will be really interesting to see. Right. If you're if your trend or if your only way to grow is by just trying to gobble up uh, more smaller companies and more of the market share, like eventually you're going to hit a limit like you there, there is a real limit to how much of that you can do. So, yeah, when you hit that point, it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we'll definitely keep our, uh, eye, 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 our eyes on that. Uh, and then one other thing that ties into uh, something else we wanted to talk about is that this merger, this acquisition of, of Sinclair 
of Tribune is only possible because the FCC changed some guidelines about you know monopolies and trusts, uh, and that has been under uh, current FCC head or director. I don't know his exact, his exact position, but his name is Ajit Pai, and um, there has been really interesting online discourse about him um, in regards to net neutrality, uh, some attacks on and defenses of him. So I don't know if you want to take the ball and kind of talking about some of that stuff. Yeah, so I, I think a couple things are interesting about this story. So first of all, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I feel like usually bureaucrats don't have such don't end up getting so much attention, like, personally, like the way Ajit Pai has. Um, and I think maybe that's because of a few reasons, primarily because, like, from what I understand, he's kind of the one who's leading this push on repealing these net neutrality, uh, like, um, sort of uh, rules that the FCC has in place. Is that is that correct? I'll trust you. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> I think that's what it is. Um so, yeah, because usually, like, because really the, the campaign against, like, this vote or whatever and for net neutrality has been, like, really focused on him. So I think that's super interesting. Um, and then I guess I don't know if that's what has led to the way he's sort of been treated uh, on Twitter um, and like just generally, but so basically what's happened is, you know, over the last few weeks, as this campaign has ramped up against him and supporting net neutrality, um, basically he has sort of been on the receiving end of a lot of really personal and racist attacks, um, like, People put up signs in his neighborhood, uh, calling out his kids. Um, people have like called his parents. Um, really, like pretty nasty stuff against him. Um, and in response to this, uh, a lot of Indian Americans, including and just South Asian Americans, including South Asian Americans who were strongly against. Pi's uh, vote that's going to happen soon, who are strongly for net neutrality, have like strongly condemned like the way that pro net net neutrality people have been treating him. Um, And that sort of came to a head with this advocacy group for Indian Americans called Indiaspora, it's like India diaspora combined. making this big statement, um, really condemning the racist attacks against him. But then um, one of the leading advocates for the South Asian American community, um, this amazing woman named uh, Deepa Iyer, she came out and was like, what the hell are you doing, India Aspera? Like, obviously, like, the racism is wrong, but you mentioned not at all in your statement why the attacks against Pi are happening, and you made no mention of net neutrality or supporting net neutrality. So, you know, along with the actual net neutrality debate, like the centrality of Pi and the racist attacks against him has brought up this other 
this other, you know, debate on his identity and and the way that pro-net neutrality advocates have been treating him and whether his treatment has something to do with his race. Um, So I guess I have a couple of thoughts on it, but I don't know if you wanted to jump in before that. Uh, So, and I think our friend Isha has kind of mentioned that defenses of him, like the one that you mentioned by Indiaspora, might be kind of like symptomatic of a larger like assimilationist politic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if if you would like call that accurate. Do you think that's like a... Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And honestly, what it reminded me a little was the movement supporting Peter Liang. Peter Liang is an Asian-American NYPD officer who uh, shot and killed an unarmed black man uh, without cause. And he was indicted... Uh, by a grand jury, and there was a large movement that formed around uh, this indictment um, in support of Peter Liang, and basically, I guess the crux and the core argument of the movement was, you didn't indict any of the white officers, so why are you indicting the Asian-American one? Um, And what's happening here is a little bit different, but it's also, there's a lot of similarities in that the the moment at which um, the Asian American diaspora, in this case the Indian American diaspora, this, or this specific advocacy group, uh, decided to get involved, was, you know, only when, you know, a member of our community was threatened, and it didn't it it kind of sort of like, I I don't think it's the same thing as the Peter Liang movement in that a lot of Indian Americans were act like actively um, going against Ajit Pai, like long before any racist attacks happened. And I don't really think that can be said necessarily in the Peter Liang case. Um, And that it's basically been like one or two, uh, organizations from what I've seen that have actually supported Ajit Pai. Um, but it is like very much in the vein of like the assimilatory politic in that like only when like we are directly threatened and like very directly threatened because I think it is also a fallacy to say that net neutrality doesn't affect South Asian American people. It definitely does um, in, in a very real way. Um, but only when we are like directly threatened by like directly racist sorts of things will we uh respond uh in a strong way and i think that's very dangerous and stupid yeah and i also think like what's so frustrating to me about this is like it's very possible to both condemn like a racist response towards someone and also acknowledge that like their policies suck right (laughs) those things aren't contradicting yeah exactly Uh, So I don't know if you had um, other thoughts on this specific topic, because I do think kind of what you were getting towards at the end um, transitions nice into something else we're going to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So one other idea that we've we had that we are going to try to make a recurring segment is kind of talk about uh, 
things that we've read recently um, that might be kind of more theory based and not necessarily like based in like current events, but are helping kind of inform the way that we think about uh, politics, our identity, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're both in a student group that has a book club, and we're currently reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis. And um, I think one thing that has really stuck out to me uh, in Freedom is a Constant Struggle is the ways in which um, we, uh, and largely just groups of, of oppressed or marginalized people, conceptualize power uh, and how that's indicative then of kind of the politics that we embrace. So there's this really pervasive idea that, you know, white people are needed to like end or fix white supremacy. And um, then I think a logical ascension is that by, you know, getting as close to whiteness or gaining proximity to whiteness um, for people of color to do so is a way to, I guess, like accelerate our liberation. And so I think that kind of is a root of uh, a lot of these like assimilatory politics. And I think that Angela Davis tackles this in a really effective way by deciding that the base is, the the base of many successful movements is not you know white people or men or people that stand to benefit from oppression, but it's people who whose lived experiences inform a greater like structural and societal critique. So the example that Angela Davis gives uh, recurringly is um, black women, poor black women who are predominantly domestic workers and their participation in the Montgomery bus boycott. And, then, and their participation in the boycott being the key thing that made it successful, not Martin Luther King or any other black man, but these black women who were organized in a very strong way. Yeah, and I, I think that goes to a broader critique that we all sort of have in that we kind of romanticize really masculinist um interpretations and displays of resistance like we've been conditioned to be attracted to the sort of rhetoric and lifestyle of people like um malcolm x and che guevara and um you know like people like gandhi who even though he was passive like had a lot of very like masculine sort of tendencies about his organizing and it's not always it's complex for why history why our interpretations of history have tended towards that um there are definitely a lot of reasons um but it does a disservice to the truth of a lot of these movements um which is like made very clear by angela davis in her book which is that these movements were led and affected by poor black women and literally the montgomery bus boycott was the most essential part of the civil rights movement in that it was like the pivot that like turned this into a thing that had a power to had the strength to make people in power change their actions. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it was very, very enlightening, like, reading her perspective on that. Yeah, and I think that 
masculine interpretation of past movements also really hinders the way that we imagine contemporary or future movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think before reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle, I had kind of moved past the, uh, I guess, analysis of white supremacy that it was that's ending it or addressing it had to be rooted in, you know, like white people acknowledging or, or addressing or sacrificing their white privilege. Um, I had moved past that to thinking about how to, you know, build power and solidarity among, you know, people of color um, and, and other, you know, groups of oppressed people. Um, but I had run into like a kind of wall where I was thinking like, man, like we have so many problems like within like different, you know, communities of color of you know, hypermasculinity and homophobia and transphobia or trans antagonism. And I, I was thinking like, how can you like form the base of a movement when there are like all these in uh, internal issues? And I guess like I wasn't even thinking that like the base of a lot of these like successful historic movements, uh, like it wasn't black men or men of color. It was uh, black women, queer women, trans trans women, like etc. So I think just in conceptualizing um, future movements and, and movements today. Like we really kind of have to challenge how we are thinking about power and like who has the power to make change. Um, and I'll, I'll speak for my, myself personally in that. No, I absolutely, I a hundred percent agree. And kind of like the thing that Davis sort of implies is that like there are naturally going to be blind spots um, to people in power, and that you know you're just not going to be able to see ways in which your power manifests when you're the one who's exerting it. And because of that, you're not going to be able to visualize a world in which the impression, the oppression that you exert doesn't exist if you can't see it. Um, so that's that's the core of like why um, the most successful movements are also the ones that center the those people who are most affected by all the different forms of oppression that exists in society today. And I think it's huge that like, she's able to tie it to like the practicality of like movement building. Um, because yeah, like it's, it's more than just the idealistic and, and correct idea of, you know, wanting to be as inclusive as possible. It's like, this is like literally the only way you can win. Right. Uh, there's also uh, a separate passage in the book that I don't have a direct quote for, but essentially it's a chapter about uh, feminism and abolition. And uh, she talks about how a lot of times like our responses to injustice or like some type of aggression towards us or people we care about, uh, often our response to that is like very, um, I forget the word that she used. It's like, it's like, but like vindictive or, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, I th- she's retributive or retru- whatever, how you, yeah, yeah. How you pronounce it. But <laughs> um, and and how that is actually an, like an extension of how we're indoctrinated by like the larger state to think about like what justice looks like. Mm-hmm. So it's like in a state uh, that views like the ultimate form of justice is either like imprisonment or death. Like mm-hmm. that inherently thinks about how we think about justice and making things right in our own personal lives. And so I think that that's just a really compelling point about how we think about justice but also 
uh, I think we it just raises the fact that we need to be careful about um, how we think about everything in our lives because uh, we've been informed uh, by certain narratives through you know our, our public schooling, through news media, all that kind of stuff that uh, we think you know we have like these uh, in original or individual thoughts, but we really have to be cognizant of the ways in which our experiences and the things that have just been pushed upon us might inform those thoughts. Yeah, and going off of that, something I've been thinking about a lot is like our imagination, like our political imagination is defined by the things that we are exposed to. Like, could, like, what what would our idea of an anti-capitalist world or a non-capitalist world look like if we didn't have Marx and all of the shit that he wrote? Like, the fact that he put it out there is, like, the reason that we see this as the vision and the future for a non-capitalist world, right? But that, like, that vision only exists because, like, someone put it into words and, like, some and like someone had the power to, like, spread these ideas. Um, and someone had the imagination to, like, think of this alternative, like, way of looking at the world or whatever. Um... So I, I, I guess I've just had the feeling that, like, there are other ways to imagine um, a world that's free of oppression that we simply have not thought of. And a, lot, a big reason that we haven't been able to think of these ideas is because, like, of the very power structures that don't allow, like, people who may have these ideas to come forward and present them. So, yeah, it's just all it's. It's always, like, I think that's, like, the central reason that, like, the most, the people who currently don't have or have the least amount of power, like, need to be centered in movements because of, like, the political imagination that they, like, will inherently have. Mm -hmm. And I think to that point, um, it also reinforces the importance of to the extent that we can, looking at uh, examples of like pre-colonial history in non-white continents, um, because uh, not to say that you know oppression didn't exist in any of these societies, but conceptions of you know family and gender and mm -hmm. sexuality, like those things existed in other contexts before European imperialism and colonization, but now like pretty much every country in the world has been affected by European values of the family and sexuality and religion and all that kind of stuff. So uh, to the extent that we can, I think like looking at um, pre-colonial examples to kind of try to imagine how we might like look at some of those things and how we can actually like, apply them to our lives can be really valuable too. Yeah, absolutely. Because it does get hard to separate like, okay, what is like you know, something that existed well before any of these, like, European capitalist influences, what exists because of it, and, like, what is unchangeable about human nature, and what is, 
just something that we've taught ourselves to do. So, yeah, I think like what you were saying earlier about just like being super conscious all the time about like what we are being fed and what we're being exposed to and like what our values are because of that is is always going to be key. Yeah. So we have one more thing on the docket that we want to talk about. I, I think some people will think it is our lightest topic and some people think it is the scariest topic. Uh, but we want to talk about Sophia the robot. Um, so oh, I think probably everyone has seen this, but uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's, it's a humanoid robot um, who like, can express emotions through like facial uh, <laughs> <laughs> expressions and can just like ha- hold a conversation with a person. And uh, if you haven't seen any of these interviews that Sophia's done, um, it is some of the stuff is really terrifying. <laughs> I don't know like why we're going forward with this. Like, I don't know why we're not just shutting this down right now because we have dystopian novels and TV shows and everything. Like, we know exactly what's going to happen. Right. Like, it's, it's kind of like this thing, like, you're going to continuously try to make her smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter until, like, what point? Like, until Sophia realizes that, like, humanity is a scourge and, like, eliminates humanity. Like, okay, is, is- this is terrifying because I've actually been reading more about this. And, like, so there's this one dude, uh, I forgot his name. It's, like, Yuval Noah Harari or something. He's a, he's a historian, writer intellectual type and basically he was he was talking about so i don't know if he was talking about this but there's this game called go which is like this very complex um i think japanese uh board game and they had a a machine like learn the game and then they had the machine use machine learning to like learn tactics and strategies that um, humans could not think of. So this Go machine has been playing and using, and like it, it of course beats all of the humans and the best Go players in the world, but it's been using tactic and, and strategies that humans can't even explain. Like they can't explain like individual moves and why that was a good move in the moment and like how that led to the machine's victory so like harari talks about how like the scary thing isn't the scary thing about artificial intelligence is that like the 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 only way for like something to truly be artificially intelligent and to truly be like intelligent beyond like a human's capacity is for that thing thought processes and ways of thinking to be incomprehensible to humans and if it gets to that point then there's literally nothing we can do because we won't understand how it thinks and like why it does what it does that's wild bro yeah and i think (laughs) something that adds more context or or scary context was there's also this video i saw on twitter i don't know if you saw it but it was like this these robot legs like dancing like on a stripper pole like moving like really like moving like smoothly not like robotically yeah uh and so (laughs) when we were bringing up this topic for recording we we talked about westworld um the hbo series and uh for anyone who hasn't watched westworld like part of it's like the premise is like this amusement park world that is inhabited by you know like robot humanoids 
and basically people can pay to go to the amusement park and do whatever they want there like there are quests but they can also just like have sex with robots or kill robots and um, do whatever they want to and then the robots rebel and that kind of stuff it's <laughs> horrifying but it's like they're literally like you're trying they're trying to build like the humanoid Sophia, and then they're also trying to like build the sex robot and then combine them to just be like a human replacement. Like, I don't, what do we need robots for at this point? Like, I guess maybe like some people are into the idea of sex robots. I, I'm sure we could find a use for, for them, but. For robots I, or sex robots? Every, all, all of them, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I don't, like, I've, it's so weird to me that society already has a conception of like how this could go terribly wrong and like it, it's like a very thought out sort of thing. Maybe this is a capitalism problem too, probably. Uh, <laughs> but and we're still not able to stop ourselves from going to this place. Yeah, it's awful. And something else that's just ludicrous is um, I forget what country it was, but that um, Sophia was given citizenship in some country. And Sophia the robot. Yeah. <laughs> and also that Sophia the robot wants to have a baby. Oh. So man. like it's it's just not gonna stop. Um, didn't she say? Didn't she say like dis- I want to destroy humans like at one point? I did not see that, but I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> there is one part of this interview that we were watching where the interviewer asked Sophia like, "Well, are you able to tell like if you're a robot? Like, how can you tell?" And then Sophia was like, "Well, let me ask you this." how can you tell that you are a human? And just, like, the most chill, like, response to that question possible. Like, this is not a drill. Yeah. This is a real, like, thing that is going around and having conversations with various people <laughs> around the world. And soon, Sophia's going to stop having conversations and start doing some actions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I'm... I mean, it's hilarious, but I'm, like, a little... Like, I'm, like, 10% actually worried. You know what I mean? I'm higher than that, man. Like, it's like <laughs> Sophia might not be the, the fear, but I really do think, like, there is, yes, like... Yeah. You know, there's, like, this path, this inevitable path that they're going down, I feel Yeah, like. it's, it's not, like, this horrible, like, ro- humanoid robots will kill us all. It's more, like, we have all these systems that, like, we create based on this type of science, and... We won't have any idea how they actually work. So when they go wrong and start doing horrible things, like, and we rely on them for everyday like things, that's right. that's the real worry. Have you ever seen Smart House or Smart Home? Oh, yo, yeah. is that the one that like traps them in the house? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Smart House decides that it wants to be like a, a wife and mother, and like when, <laughs> when they like when the family says that like the robot house cannot do that for them, it goes like mad and does all this stuff damn that's nuts and i mean look i wouldn't be happy if um robots just killed all humans but also like i couldn't argue that that wouldn't be the best outcome for like the earth and like all the other species on this earth so that's that's the horrible thing i can very easily picture like the robots calculus for why it needs to destroy all humans there's so many good reasons yeah and bro like this is in like multiple tv shows and movies like (laughs) I, as a robot, have realized how destructive humans are, and to save the Earth, I have destroyed humans. Like, that is something that I've seen in, like, multiple movies. <laughs> yeah. shows. Like, I can't even argue with that. Like, what am I supposed to say when Sophia's like, these are all the reasons? I'll be like, yeah, you're yeah. right. <laughs> Take me now. Take me now. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, this was a lot of fun, as always. That's everything that we wanted to talk about today. Uh, before we get out of here, is there anything that you want to leave the people with? I'm not going to leave the people with any promises that we'll continue to do this, but we're probably going to 
do this next week. <laughs> Hopefully so. Maybe. Um, I, well, actually, I'm going home. I don't know. We're going to do it soon, though. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to bring up, because I'm super excited about it, is that Dead Prez is coming to Boston in January. Uh, Dead Prez, I have to sadly admit, I like only fairly recently discovered, but they are definitely my favorite rap group. Rap group. They make... Um, really good like leftist revolutionary music um, so y'all should definitely check them out if you're in Boston get tickets to go see them uh, after we go off the air we can discuss if we want to risk like copyright infringement and play like one of their songs at the end of this episode I feel like if they sued us then that would go against their entire philosophy that's a great point so maybe we'll <laughs> when, we'll end out this episode with uh, the soothing sounds of abuse their morality <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Well, great talking to you as always. Pross. You too, man. Thank you all for listening. I throw a Molotov cocktail at the precinct. You know how we think. Organize the hood under the I Ching banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live. Able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common need. And all my comrades are ready. We just spreading the seed. Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rabbit get shot in they back, then fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the fact, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C-Lo for push-ups now. Many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Yeah, I was black now. Live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. So the rent always be late. Can you relate? We living in a police state.